Here we go. Please open up your Bibles then to Mark chapter 14. We're looking at verses 32 through 42. Um, and if you will, please stand um, so we can honor the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 14, 32 through 42. Then they came to a place named Gethsemane. And he told his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him. And he began to be deeply distressed. Say distressed. Distressed. And troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved. Say grieved. To the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. He went a little farther and he fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father. All things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And then he came and he found them sleeping. And he said, Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And once again, he went away and he prayed, saying the same thing. Say same thing. And he did it again. Yep. And again, he came and he found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. They did not know what to say to him. And then he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The time has come. See, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's go. See, my betrayer is near. This is God's word. You may be seated. I find the the refrain from one of my favorite hymns very helpful in understanding what's going on here. Let me read to you just the refrain of the hymn. Oh, make me understand. Help me to take it in what it meant to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. Let me read it to you again. Oh, make me understand it. Help me to take it in what it meant to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. That refrain of the hymn really forms the most appropriate approach to the text this morning. Like, we come together to study, like, really what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we want to understand it because we need to understand what happened to him so we can try to figure out what's going on. Like, like what did he really go through to bear our sin? What really happened? And by looking at this text, right, we get to observe his words, his behaviors, his prayers, and we get to see, like, like really, what did it mean for the Holy One to bear our sin? And so the first thing that you need to notice in the text before you is we need to figure out who is the, the, who, who is the, the source of the narrative. Well, it couldn't be the disciples because most of them were asleep, right? That makes sense. And so at some point, it looks like it's the Lord Jesus himself, at some point after his resurrection, he must have told them about this encounter in the garden so they can record it and tell us about it. So the source is Jesus. So we're trying to figure out, like, what did it mean for him to bear our sin? And, and so like, that will form our big idea this morning, um, and then we'll kind of flow from that. The big idea of the text is this. The father was silent when the son cried out so that he could answer our prayer to be saved. Like, 
it's a lot to think through for a minute. But the father, the father was silent when the son cried out so that he could answer our prayer to be saved. See, Jesus did what no one else could do. Um, he, he was resolved to stand in my place and yours against the wrath of God. And, and he did it in human weakness, complete humanity. Right, so that, and, and when it happens, the father was completely silent toward the son, just so he can answer your prayer to be saved. And so, Jesus, we want to see a lot of things happen in this text. But the first thing we want, we want to figure out is what what did it really mean for him to do that? What did he have to go through in order to save us? Okay, so here is our perfect savior in the garden, and he will be alone. Okay, first of all, that's what you need to understand. He's going to be alone. He'll be alone in the garden, and he'll be alone on the cross. And he's going to face it all by himself. And so this scene, how many, um, or, or how many of you guys are studying to be teachers someday? Hopefully Bible teachers. Okay. You want to write down this word. It's called the hypostatic union. Uh, you want to study this in depth if you really want to understand theology. The hypostatic union is whenever God became flesh. You have 100% God and 100% man combined in the same person. And so often we don't really view Jesus in his 100% humanity. But here in the garden, we get to see like with absolute clarity what it meant for him to be completely human. Like we get to see and understand the humanity of Jesus on full display as he struggles through the garden. We get to encounter what it really meant for the Son of God to put on flesh completely and battle our sin. The eternal Son of God in this text. See, notice he comes He comes from the very presence of God but he's fully man and he's going to be tempted and tried and treated as a human so that he can take our place because only one human can, can replace another. We have to have a perfect sacrifice. So what did it mean? What did it, like, just think about it for a moment. What did it mean? What did he really have to go through in order to bear our sin? Right? And so we need to marvel. Like as we study this text, I hope you can get it. Many, 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 many wonderful preachers and commentators before me said they, they said there's no way to communicate the, the grief that he went through. There's no way to really describe that in detail. And so, so I'm going to try my best, right? And I hope you can wrestle through the text on your own. But, but really, we need to understand exactly what happened to him in the garden so we can understand why we should worship him. The father was silent toward the son so that he could answer your prayer. So, so let us marvel this morning as we take that in. This text is meant really at the end of this text, I hope, I hope in a real way that you kind of walk out of here and then you just worship God. Like you truly, from the depth of who you are, are so thankful for what Jesus did for you. Okay, so what does it mean? Let me give you two thoughts and then we're going to go to the text. Here's the two things that I, that I think, this is what he really had to go through in order to make salvation possible. First of all, he will have to be abandoned by all of those who know him. That's the first thing we have to see in the text, and we'll see it in a minute. It begins in Gethsemane, right? He's arrested, and he will be crucified, and all of those who are closest to him will turn their back on him, and they will run from him, right? And as he faces, think about that, as he faces the horrors of the cross, like he's going to be all alone, like his friends won't even be there to comfort him. Remember, but he told his disciples about this in our last text. Remember that? He said, the father will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will what? They'll scatter. They're going to run. And so this abandonment begins in the garden, right? And he takes these disciples to the garden with him, and they fall asleep. 
Like, they fall asleep. Like, like he's about to go through the most gruesome thing that anybody could ever go through, and he's all alone. He'll be arrested, he'll be alone. He'll be put under false trial, and he'll be alone. And he'll be beaten, and he'll be, al- he'll be alone. And then when he's crucified, none of his friends are there. Like, he's all by himself. And then when he finally drinks the cup of God's wrath, he's going to be alone. But then second, this is the other thing that I think the text is teaching you. It means, in order for him to save you, he will be abandoned by the Father. What begins in Gethsemane whenever he cries out for help from the Father, the Father remains silent. That's what you have to see in Gethsemane. Like, he cries out for help three times, like in the Garden of Gethsemane, and does the Father ever answer him? Mm Mm-mm. So he starts in the garden by being all alone away from the Father, and then he will end by being suspended in the air, crying out for help as he's absorbing the wrath of God. And his Father turns his back on him. The cup that he speaks of in verse 36 is the cup of God's wrath. It's the cup of God's wrath. Whenever he's drinking the cup of God's wrath, And he cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He will be experiencing in the full measure the targeted and gruesome almighty wrath of God against against him for my sins and yours. And he'll be all alone, completely alone for the first time in eternity. He'll be alone. But listen. It's not that he just felt alone. That's what the text is not communicating. You know, sometimes we just feel alone, right? We just kind of feel sad and we kind of feel alone. He wasn't just feeling alone. He wasn't just imagining being alone. He really was alone. We don't even know what that's like. For the father that he shared all of eternity past with, we don't even understand that, right? Like he has this eternity past with God the Father where the relationship is in perfect unity, like from forever past. We don't even understand that. But it breaks. It breaks now in the garden and it's going to break on the cross. He will actually really be alone. But what you need to understand is he does it in human weakness. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But he still overcame it. Here's the big idea again. The father was silent when the son cried out so that he could answer your prayer to be saved. Let us now start looking at the text. Okay, so we have just left the the Last Supper, right? We left the upper room and we started chanting the Hillel Psalms. Do you remember that last week? So Jesus is, is chanting, I will not die, but I will live, right? As they're ascending the Mount of Olives, okay? So Jesus had just reminded them of the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 12. He said, the, 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 the Father, God the Father will strike the shepherd. And whenever he strikes the shepherd, the sheep will do what? They're going to scatter. They're going to run, right? And it, boy, it doesn't take long, right? We hit the Garden of Gethsemane and they start falling asleep, So look at verses 32 through 33 with me. They came to a place called Gethsemane, and he told his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John, circle those three names, that's super important, right? He's taken them up the Mount of Transfiguration before. All three of them have pledged their loyalty to him in more than one way. Peter said that he would die by his side, and then James and John both said, let us sit by your side in glory. Remember that in in Mark chapter 10? And Jesus said, are you able to drink from the cup that I'm about to drink from? And they said, what? They said yes. They said yes, and so now he's going to let them taste it. Okay, now he's going to let them, he's going to bring them into the garden to see if they are humanly strong enough to pull this off, right? It's a test for them as it is for Jesus. So he brings them into the garden, and, he, and, and then notice what happens. He, what happens, he begins to be deeply distressed and troubled, and he said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. What we observe from the Son of God 
in the Garden of Eden. And what we hear come from his mouth is unlike anything we have ever seen in the Gospel of Mark. Okay? Think back through the Gospel of Mark with me so far. He's, he's forgiven sin. He's healed the sick. He's cast out demons. He's raised the dead. He's calmed the sea. He's walked on water. Right? He's confronted the religious leaders in boldness and courage. Right? We've seen him strong. We've seen him bold. We have never seen him like this. This is completely different. As soon as he hits the Garden of Gethsemane, everything changes. We've never seen him greatly distressed. Do you understand that? We've never seen that. We've seen his disciples greatly distressed, right? Whenever the storm was crashing on the boat, was he distressed about it? Not even once. But now he's under like extreme stress. And he tells the disciples that this distress is so bad that it's actually drawing him near to death. Do you see that in the text? The distress and the distress and the anxiety of what's about to happen is drawing him close to death. Look at it in verse 34 again. This anguish is so, so bad that he can't even stand. Right? He falls to the ground. Several years ago when I was a police officer, there was a car wreck out on, on Highway 136, and a bunch of teenagers were ejected from a car right? And a girl got trapped under the hood of the car that was upside down on top of her. And when we arrived on the scene, there were several of us there. We tried to move the car because she was still squirming underneath the hood of the car trying to get out. And we couldn't get her out. Like we we pushed and pushed and lifted with everything we could until she finally died right there in front of us. Okay? That's not the worst part. The worst part is when her mom arrived on the scene. And when her mom pulled up on the scene... I can see her, her daughter's arm still sticking out from underneath the car. The grief that hit her, like, like it overwhelmed her, like, and she just fell to the ground, shivering, throwing up, right, just like overly distressed. That appears to be the effect that is happening to Jesus right now. Do you understand? Like he's deeply distressed that he can't even walk, Okay. He can no longer remain standing. And this all, if you're really watching the text, it appears to have to happen suddenly. Because just prior to this, they were doing the Hillel Psalms and chanting. He's on his battle march, right? But now there's this deep grieving, and it appears to come out of nowhere. There's no evidence anywhere in the Gospel of Mark until right now that he grieved like this. So why now? What's going on? Why? Well, we can discover what's going on by the prayer that he prays in verses 35 and 36. Look at verses 35 and 36 with me. He went a little further, and he fell to the ground, and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this what? Take this cup away. Circle the word cup. You're going to want to understand this in depth. Take this cup away from me. Like In verse 36, we see that the deep distress, the thing that's causing him to fall to the ground and being sick, is because of this cup. So, and it's the process of drinking the cup, right? He wants the hour to pass from him. Like, if there's any other way, Father, like, please. And so whatever is in this cup that he's supposed to drink, the contents of it are so awful and terrible that it produces a shuddering terror over our savior and he drops to the ground so what is this cup what's what's this cup well if you're a student of scripture you no doubt would be familiar with the old testament references to the cup 
um, in Isaiah chapter 51. I don't have time to go over it in depth, but you're going to want to study it in depth. Isaiah chapter 51 describes this cup as the cup of, of God's wrath. They call it the cup of staggering. Okay? It's so awful that it makes you stagger and it will crush you. So the cup and the contents of the cup are the bitter wrath of God against, uh, against humans for our sin. And, and so this, this cup and the contents of the cup is what causes our Lord to fall to the ground. Listen, it's not his dying. Did you see that in verses 35 and 36? He's not deeply distressed because he's dying. He's already known that he was going to die. He's been telling the disciples about it for multiple chapters. It's not the death that's consuming him, right? It's the cup. It's the cup. There's something about this cup that's just so awful. So why the sudden distress of soul? Why is he grieving so much? Well, Luke, if, you're, if, you're, if you studied in your cross-referencing this week, Luke chapter 22, verse 44, describes it in an even more detail, okay? The distress was so bad, right? It says, being in anguish, he prayed more fervently, then his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. That's actually physically possible, that you stress so much that you actually bleed, Okay, so he's, there is something that's so awful about this cup that's causing our Savior to be overwhelmed. So what is this cup? What's in this cup? Like, like what is it? Like James Edwards, one of the commentators, he wrote this. He said, nothing in all of the Bible compares to Jesus' agony and anguish in Gethsemane. None of the laments in the Psalms, nor the broken heart of Abraham as he's getting ready to sacrifice Isaac, nor David's grief at the death of his son Absalom. There's nothing that describes the anguish and the agony of what's happening to Jesus anywhere else in all of the Bible. This is the most terrible, horrific, like, experience that can ever be, like, can ever happen. And it's happening right before you in Mark chapter 14. So why? Death isn't the problem. Okay, death's not the problem. We, we actually see the Old Testament prophets standing strong as they're getting killed. And then after the resurrection, whenever the apostles are called to be martyred, they're not shuddering in terror. They're being bold. They're willing to die. Something happened in this cup that gave everybody after Jesus is the power to stand before death. So now let me try to open up the cup for you. I just want you to behold what's in the cup. It must be like that Jesus is fully aware that he's about to face something that is more than his own death. It's not his mortality that he's afraid of. It's something completely different. Jesus is about to fully, completely identify with sinners that he will become the target that receives God's wrath in full. Let me say that to you again. He's, he's sinless. Do you understand this? But he's about to become and identify with sinners so completely and so fully that he will be the target that receives God's wrath in full. And that is what overwhelms him to the point of death. It's not the cross that scares him. It's not death that scares him. It's not the beating. It's not the false accusations. It's none of that that scares him. He is about to receive the targeted wrath of God and it's so overwhelming that he's sweating drops of blood. The one who knew no sin is about to receive the consequences of all the sin in all the world. And it's horrifying. Do you understand? It's terrible. It's horror. It's absolutely ridiculous. Like, it's scary. 
But then, but notice, notice verse 36 again. Let me read verse 36 to you. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible. What things? So at this point, Jesus must be assuming there's another way. There's another way. Like, Lord, there's got to be another way that I don't have to do this, right? And so he begins to sweat drops of blood. Just moments ago, Jesus was standing bold. He was standing bold whenever he was prophesying and talking about Zechariah chapter 12. He even inaugurated the last meal, changing it over to the last supper for us so that people would remember his death forever. He's not afraid of his death. But when God the Father strikes the shepherd, there's something awful that's about to occur, and he asks the Father, Abba, Father, please, like if it's at all possible, please just take this cup away from me. Like, like this text, like think about this for a moment. Like imagine a son looking at their father and just saying, Daddy, please don't strike me. Like, please just don't strike me. Right? And he does it three times. Like he's not scared to die. He's not scared. Of, he's afraid of being hit by the Father. Do you understand? There's something completely different that's going on. So as he contemplates being hit by the Father for all the sins of humanity, he stumbles. He stumbles. Isaiah chapter 51, if you're studying that later, 17 through 23, describes this event right? The cup of staggering, it is so awful that all of those walking around will be stumbling, right? And there will be one who drinks from that cup. And right now in this moment, the son is contemplating being abandoned by the father. And so he cries out, please, like, don't strike me if there's another way. I want you to see his humanity on full display, okay? That's what I want you to see. Like he's at this point, thank you, Bubba. At this point, at this point, he is genuinely, genuinely tempted to forsake bearing the role of the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He's being tempted, do you understand? As a human, like he's fully being tempted to walk away from this. And so he's saying, Father, please don't strike me. Please, please do not strike me. And at the conclusion of all three appeals, do you know what he hears? He hears divine silence. So he cries out and he prays, just asking for the Father to, to, to speak with him, right? This Father that he's had a relationship with all, for all of eternity past. And he hears silence. That's what scares him. This is the Son of God who has spoken to the Father for all of eternity past, who knows the voice of his Father, right? He knows what the Father sounds like. But here in the garden, all he hears is nothing. Like, he hears nothing. And, and by the way, we can be absolutely certain. We can be absolutely certain if there was another way that the Father would have pulled it off. Do you understand? Whenever Jesus is asking that question, if there's another way for, like, if there's another way, please. Like, we can be absolutely certain that if there was another way, God the Father would have done it. God the Father would have answered his prayer. The father was silent when the son cried out so that he could answer our prayer to be saved. That changes the way you read John 3.16. For God so loved the world 
right? But as his son cried out for mercy, as his son cried out for another way, the father didn't even answer. This is what it means for Jesus to bear away our sins. This is what it means. If this is going to work, if the cross is going to work in a few, just a a chapter away, right? If the cross is actually going to work, then he will have to be abandoned by his friends. He will have to be abandoned by his father. He will, in a real way, experience hell. Divine silence. The divine silence of God is hell. Like whenever he is meant for heaven, the perfect one will experience hell instead. So how are we to apply this text? Well, there's a first, there's a several things that you need to understand, but first of all, why do you think he brought Peter, James, and John into the garden? He's answering his own question, right? If there's another way, if there's another way, he brought James, you know, Peter, James, and John in the garden to find out if there's another way. Can they stay awake? Can they pray? Can they drink from the cup? There's no way. James and John promised they would in chapter 10. They would stand by his side and drink from the cup no matter what it took, right? Peter swore that he would stand by Jesus' side, even if he had to be killed. They couldn't even stay awake. Like, there is no other way. Listen, a lot of people, especially these three, Peter, James, and John, they wanted to identify with him in his glory. They wanted to identify with him in his privileged position, but they did not want to identify with him in his suffering. We're looking at something completely different here. They did not want to identify with him in the silence that he got from God. In this very moment, Jesus was in the garden being reminded by God himself of why he must walk through this for them. He said the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he's talking about those three men. Do you understand? He's saying like, if anybody can do it, if anybody could have pulled this off and didn't need a savior, it would have been those three guys. But they couldn't even stay awake. So Jesus enters the garden and immediately is overcome with deep, deep grief and at the point of death and he falls to his knees. He falls down and he prays three times and the father does. He just says, please don't strike me. Find another way. And then we have, in verses 41 and 42, another change. Like, he goes from not being able to walk to standing tall. Do you see it in verses 41 and 42? Look at 41 and 42 with me. Then he came. A third time and said to them, are you still sleeping, resting? Enough. The time has come. See, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. Is he falling to the ground there? No, something has changed. Like something is different about him. There is something going on. You need to circle the word enough there. Um, the word enough in verse 41 is an utterance of exasperation. Meaning, this is what it means when you, actually, when you go back and look at the original language. He's saying, what's the use of them even trying? That's what he's getting to. The garden is testing himself and testing the disciples. And now he's saying, what's the use in them even trying? Enough. I'll go through with it. Enough. Father, I see exactly what you're talking about. I see exactly why I must be the one to drink from the cup of wrath because they can't do it. So although God was silent in the garden, Jesus listened. Do you understand the beauty of the text? Like, although like he's crying out for God to answer his prayer, God is silent, but Jesus is listening in the silence and he's seeing the disciples sleeping in front of him and he says, yep, I must go drink the cup for them. They can't do it. There's no way. So in the silence, he listened and he heard. The word enough, that word enough is a shout to the end of time that just simply says you can never save yourself. 
If you're going to be saved, it's because Jesus goes and drinks the cup of wrath on your behalf. So why the change in verses 41 and 42? Why, why does he go from falling on the ground, like being just like distressed and grieving to standing tall? God did answer his prayer. That's exactly what happened. He did answer his prayer. There is no other way. You must go through with this. And so in complete resolve, right, he stands tall, knowing, knowing there's no other way. I will not die, but I will live. I can hear him chanting it still, right? Like, I will not die, but I will live. I will not die, but I will live as he marches to the cross, right? Because he's going to rise from the grave. Like, he's going to rise from the grave. So he's ready. And in verses 41 and 42, he's ready. The betrayer is near. There's no going back at this point. The weakness in the garden, like, like the weakness that he experienced in the human, in his human flesh, gave him the strength that he needed to die for other humans. He experienced it at the, at, the, at the worst possible way, but there's no alternative to the cross. That's what you need to understand. That's the major implication for all of us. There is no alternative to the cross. There is nothing, there is no prayer, there's no good works, there's nothing that you could ever do that could save you. Jesus must die on your behalf. Right? The Father was silent with the Son so that he could hear your prayer. There's also another minor as we close a little bit, I want to think about this. There's also a minor application that I want you to think about. Sometimes whenever things get really hard in our life and they get there often, right? And we get deeply grieved, right? We lose a loved one or something goes wrong or something happens. Somebody gets cancer, right? We lose our finances. There's all kinds of things. And we begin to pray and be distressed and we pray and we, and we, and we fall to our knees and just cry out to, to the Lord like, please hear my prayer. And then sometimes it, like, it just feels like God is silent. You ever had that feeling? And you think, man, like, like, just answer me. Like, Father, please. Like I, like, I need your help. Here's what I think we learn in a minor way from this text. It's not the major application. But I think Jesus identifies with us in our weakness so we can identify with him and his strength. Okay, here's what I mean. Like, I, I'm going to say two things I want you to think about. I think he identifies with us in our weakness so we can identify with him and his strength. Because on the cross, he takes all of our sin and then he gives us all of his righteousness. That means what he did in the Garden of Gethsemane, whenever he stood the test of the garden, becomes yours. That means that you can, you can withstand the silence of God whenever he's not answering your prayers because Jesus already did it. It's yours. Here's, here's where it goes, though. I think, I think, I think this is what it means. Whenever we, we sit in silence over our not answered prayers, I think in a real way, we have a chance to be led back to the garden. Like, I think when we, when we get so deeply distressed and we, and, we, and we start to crumble under the pressure and things are going really bad and we're praying, we're not hearing anything from God, I, I think that in a real way, we're being led back to the garden where we can see that we're not alone. Do you understand? We will never be alone because Jesus was alone. That's what he's doing here. Like, the, the son was abandoned by the father, so you never have to be. You're not alone. Like, you're not alone. Like, like that's, that's the point when, I, when we started talking about, like, Jesus wasn't just feeling alone, right? Like, he was actually alone. But whenever you feel alone, are you actually alone? It's impossible because Jesus already drank the cup of God's wrath on your behalf. 
And so I really think the silence of God sometimes is just an eye-opener for us to step back into the garden and marvel at Jesus. The Father was silent with the Son so that he could answer your prayer and you would never be alone. 